Voyage. My name is Stephen Spencer. While fighting in Vietnam, I fell in love with a local girl and was engaged by the end of my tour. The U.S. Army would not extend my tour of duty there, forcing me back stateside. I promised my Vietnamese fiancée that I would return to marry her. I would travel across the world, cross enemy lines, and get shot in the process, all to try to be with her. I've never told anyone this story before. While in high school, my friends and I noticed how too many American GIs from our area came home in coffins or seriously wounded from the war. The draft was looming and we all knew that sooner or later we would be pulled into the war. I was a little different from my friends where I decided that the patriotic thing to do was to serve in the war. My friends didn't know it, but I signed up for the Army on December 30th, 1970 at age 17. In basic training at Fort Dix, New Jersey, I scored high enough to qualify for the West Point entrance exam, but I turned it down in order for the opportunity to serve in the Vietnam War. I would later serve three months in Germany before I volunteered for service in Vietnam, and a short while later my request was granted and landed in Da Nang, South Vietnam in December 1971. From there, I was sent to Cameron Bay as part of postal operations in the 39th Base Post Office. My assignment was to work money, mail, and at times, cash the payroll for the troops. Mostly at the base post office, but occasionally, sent by Chapa to serve the merchant marine ships in the South China Sea with my commander and XO, or sent by C-130 into Banmatui to serve the 2nd Special Forces Group. During those assignments, nothing happened. But on April 9, 1972, while on base in Cameron, the hooches of the 510th Signal Company, which were nearby the hooches of the 39th Base Post Office, as well as other barracks, were attacked by Viet Cong sappers, which fired AK-47s and used satchel charges to kill and wound American soldiers, many of whom were finishing their tours and were about to ship back home. On April 11, 1972, four of us in the postal unit were moved to another side of Cameron to the 50th Army Postal Unit whose headquarters were based in the train. That's where I met Nguyen Tao Lien, a very beautiful 17-year-old Vietnamese girl who worked doing the laundry and making beds for the GIs. She was one of the house girls for our hooches. I wasn't the only GI who noticed her. She was the most beautiful girl on the base. But unlike some guys who hit on her, I was polite to her. We all paid her for her cleaning services, but I gave her extra money because I felt they were underpaid. An older Vietnamese woman came to me and told me that this girl liked me, but being the culture it was, Lian could not tell me any such thing. So I came to her. By the way, I was born and raised in Boston. I only mention it now because I used to sound like it. Decades of living in Ohio have erased my Southie accent, but this is me back then. Hi, I'm Steven. Uh, ten Toy La Steven? <laughs> What? Your accent, it's... Terrible? Yes. <laughs> hey, I'm trying. So you speak English? Yes. What's your name? Lien. Lien. That's pretty. Does it mean something? It means lotus. Isn't that like the national flower? Very good, Stephen. The lotus also symbolizes purity. 
I wasn't sure if she meant anything by that. Like, maybe she was telling me I'm not like the other Vietnamese girls you see hanging around the base. And she wasn't. As for me, I was raised strict Roman Catholic. Lien was raised in a strict Buddhist household. But it didn't matter what we believed. For me, it was love at first sight. I'm going for a walk. Want to come? Sure. We walked around a base and got to know each other. I live with my mother, father, and brother. Have you ever been outside Vietnam? No. My life has only been in Gamrang and the villages around it. Do you have a boyfriend? No. Not even at school? I did not finish school. I had to help my family with working. She wasn't the college girl I'd be dating if I'd never come to the war, but I found her to be extremely intelligent and literate. She was already speaking a foreign language, and that from exposure to Americans on base. Our second date was a Vietnamese movie theater. It was a, an American comedy, dubbed a Vietnamese. We got a, a lot of stares. I was hoping she wouldn't notice, but she did. So I took her out of there, and she went home. Our third date was on the beaches of the South China Sea. Lien packed a picnic of Vietnamese food, and we ate in a secluded area. What's this? Spring roll. Try this sauce. It was delicious, but my tongue started to tingle. My mouth felt like it was on fire. <laughs> Have some rice. <laughs> After lunch, we walked together along the beach, and I reached over to hold a hand. She smiled back at me. I told her my story. I have three other brothers, a sister, and a grandmother with a farm in upstate New York. My parents are divorced, and my dad got custody of us all. After this war is over, I'm going to college. College? Lien told me about her Buddhist upbringing, and I explained my Roman Catholic background. So different. But it didn't seem to matter. You know what is better than the movies? The Hackboy is outdoor musical play. I saw them with my parents when I was little. Is there anything like this in America? Maybe rock bands on tour? Or drive-in movies? That, drive-in movies, that's it. Do Americans really go to dates there? Well, yeah, but nobody actually watches the movies. Why not? Seeing my opening, I smiled and turned her toward me. Because of something like this, I brought her into my arms, reached down, and kissed her on the lips. I'd been waiting for this, and made it count. Eventually, we separated. She stepped back, smiling, but hiding her face a little, bashful. Did you need me to show you that again? Yes. I put my arms around her waist, she put her arms around my neck, and this time, she kissed me. I don't know why I like you, but I just do. Our walks became more frequent, as did the kissing. <laughs> we made out, but that's about it. It was all pretty chaste. I didn't care. Up till now, I had very little experience with the opposite sex. Some of the guys on a base were 
busy bedding the beautiful prostitutes we had access to, but I was the only guy I knew actually trying to date a Vietnamese girl. Most of the time, we saw each other on base. Other times, we got off base and walked along the beaches of the South China Sea. Our relationship during my tour in the war developed, and we got engaged. She gave me a ring and put it on me, as well as a Buddha necklace. She was a pretty religious Buddhist, and I was a religious Catholic. I wore the necklace anyway. Her family disagreed with her desire to marry me. She was willing to go against her parents at that time. I don't blame them for resisting our relationship. They didn't want to lose their daughter. I understood that at the time and had a solution. I offered to try to take Leanne's family back to the Catskills to my grandmother's Black Angus farm. After all, they were farmers too. But Leanne's parents didn't want her to leave their home. So I offered to stay in Vietnam to live with her. I wrote my parents throughout the war, but didn't write them about Leanne right away. My father had fought in World War II in the South Pacific. He hated the Japanese. I was afraid that would extend to all Southeast Asians, including Vietnamese. My commanding officer tried talking me out of marrying Leanne. It was highly recommended not to do that, and I needed permission from my CO. He was a good guy just trying to protect me, though my first sergeant was fine with it. I tried extending my tour in Vietnam to get the marriage accomplished while there. And I told Leanne I would stay there after my time in service was over. But due to the protests back in the United States, the army was cutting back. More troop withdrawals were happening. After 10 and a half months in country, the army was shipping me home, whether I liked it or not. I broke the news to Leanne. I will come back for you. No. I will, I promise. We'll get married and I'll bring you back to the States with me. We can live on my grandmother's Angus farm in upstate New York. A little town called Hanacroy. The Catskills are so beautiful. There's so many great places for us to go on walks together. And at night, you should see the stars. It's like there's some cosmic dimmer switch and God has it turned up all the way. I can get a job at the post office and, and go to college part-time. My grandma could teach you about cannon and making preserves. We can buy a house nearby for your whole family. They could work on the farm. They'd make pretty good money. And, and we can find English classes for everyone to take. There are nice restaurants too. I, I, I bet you'd love Italian food. I know the place to take you. I'm not sure about Vietnamese restaurants, but if there's any within a hundred miles, we'll find it. I can take you to all the driving movies you'd ever want to see. And baseball, oh, you'll love it. Once I explain it all to you, I, I hope. But my favorite time of the year there is the winter. Nothing beats sitting by the fireplace on a cold night with some hot cocoa. And Christmas, oh, I, I know that's not your thing at all, but the way we celebrate it, all the traditions and everything, you'll be caroling in no time. Caroling? Let's go, soldier, moving out. I don't want you to go. Just remember my promise. I'll be back. We exchanged addresses and a kiss. Not the big Hollywood kiss you might imagine. I knew the guys were watching me out of the deuce and a half, so I climbed into the back of the truck. I watched her as we drove away. She never took her eyes off of me. As we headed out, the rest of the guys were laughing it up. We'd made it through our tour alive, but I sat there quietly, broken up, sitting on a lot of emotions.
when we eventually landed back in Oakland, California, we were all given the option of a steak dinner, courtesy of the Army. I didn't stick around for it. I just left the airport and walked around the Oakland area, thinking about Leanne. I wondered if I would ever see her again. I vowed to myself that I would. About a half mile from the airport, I encountered anti-war protesters complete with signs waving them at traffic. They had what I thought were bag lunches, but thought different when they saw me in uniform. Amidst the many F-bombs they dropped, calling me a warmongering killer and so forth, they pulled eggs from the paper bags and threw them at me. I dodged as many as I could, but I was hit in the chest and it continued as I tried turning around and getting back to the airport. I was hit by a half-eaten sandwich, apple cores, and general garbage. I stopped at a gas station somewhere and tried cleaning myself off. Lucky my duffel bag had a change of uniforms. Eventually I made it home. I was home, but I wasn't done with my commitment to the Army. I was assigned to Fort Knox in the 543rd MP Company. My assignment was in the stockade checking letters and packages for contraband, such as drugs, explosives, and firearms. I was also used as a military police officer, accompanying prisoners to Fort Leavenworth. During my time in Fort Knox, Kentucky, I lost contact with Leanne. I never received mail at my home in Massachusetts that I knew of, and my mail to her was being returned from Vietnam. It made me feel anxious about Leanne as if something had happened to her. This wasn't like her. I became very concerned, enough to launch a search for my army base. I contacted the U.S. consulate and embassy in Vietnam asking about what was happening there. Chaplain of my former area of operations knew of the village she had lived in and went to check it out himself. He explained in his letter that the loss of American jobs by the Vietnamese had moved some, but the Viet Cong had attacked around the village, forcing many to leave, including Lian's family. This was after months of sending correspondence to Lian and having no response from her. Months of contacting the U.S. Embassy in Vietnam and the Vietnamese Embassy in the United States failed. Lian was officially missing as far as I knew. I did not know if she was living or dead or just completely out in the jungles of Vietnam alive in a place where I could not contact her. After almost a year at stateside, I knew I had to return to Vietnam to find my fiance. Finally discharged from the Army in late 1973, I returned home to Massachusetts. It wasn't that I didn't want to be with my family, but I only had one thing in mind. Dad, I need to go back. To Vietnam? Yeah, I need to bring Leanne back. Stephen. I made a promise. Yeah, you were in a difficult situation. People say things, and you mean it when you say it, but then real life sets in. I made a promise to myself, not just to her. I said I'd go back for her, and I meant it. Yeah? How would you even get there? Fly to Saigon. I just need a ticket. Will you help me? What, fly back to a goddamn war zone so you can get yourself killed over some girl? Well, she's my fiancé. Yeah. Until you're 21, if you live under my roof, it's my rules. I'll save up the money. Not just for a plane ticket. You need food for how many days? What? I don't know yet. And you need money for a return flight for your fiancé, and not to mention rent. Rent? If you're gonna stay here, you have to pay your way. You're charging me room and board? Looks like you need a job. I was so angry. I didn't realize it, but he was trying to make it harder for me to save up the money to fly back to Vietnam. 
I think he was hoping that I'd lose focus, or start dating someone here and lose interest in Leanne. But that was impossible. I went to work in a lab across town, and trying to save money, I walked to work five miles up and five miles back in the dead of winter. I paid the room and board and did not spend another cent. Ultimately, with my army money plus money for my job, I saved enough to go to Vietnam and back, plus money for food and other necessities along the way. Dad drove me to Logan Airport for my flight to Vietnam. Look, I know you've gone through a lot of effort for this trip, but it's not too late to turn back. Please, stop. Just have to get this out of your craw and come back. I'll call you when I find her. How long is that going to be? As long as it takes. I flew to Vietnam on a seven-day visa. I knew finding Leanne and bringing it back would take more than a week, but I figured I'd sort it out once I got there. I finally returned to Vietnam, flying into Saigon in April of 1974, a little more than two years after meeting Leanne and 16 months after last seeing her. The war was still raging and the U.S. had withdrawn for the most part. The South Vietnamese government was not holding up well under the absence of the American troops. By some fate, I met another American man and his Vietnamese wife who escorted me to Nha Trang where they lived. They put me up for free and even fed me while I was there, being sympathetic to my plight. I put an ad in the Vietnamese newspaper, the Boutet, which in English means steel pen. As part of my search for Leanne, it included a picture of me and Leanne so there'd be no confusion. Three days later, I received a letter. She was in the Mekong Delta. It wasn't easy to get there, but did manage by a beer truck down towards Saigon and a taxi to a riverside area, then by a basket boat, which transported myself and five other Vietnamese down the river. But when I went to meet her, it's not Leanna after all. It's just another Vietnamese woman looking to marry an American GI. I returned to Nha Trang, where I set up my own home base with the American and Vietnamese couple and began again. I started by going to the village where she last lived, and she was not there. And no one seemed to know who she was, except for one elderly Vietnamese woman who knew her family and explained that she had moved to Tuiwa. She even had her address. Armed with that information and having trouble with rides, I went to Nha Trang, packed my backpack, and got on a road heading that way, occasionally being picked up by Vietnamese drivers with other Vietnamese in tow. All of us packed in what looked like an ox cart. I paid the driver a few dong and was led off just short of Tuiwa and took a road through jungle terrain until finally arriving at my destination. I reached the village of Tuiwa at night and finally got to that address. A young Vietnamese woman answered my knock. She had known of me from Leanne's account of her relationship with me. The woman said that Leanne had left to go to Bamatui in the Central Highlands a while back to be with the rest of her family. The woman had Leanne's family address, but would not give it to me. I had no place to stay except for a Buddhist monastery that allowed me to sleep on the floor that night. In the morning, the woman told me Leanne was engaged to a Vietnamese policeman. Leanne's parents had arranged a marriage, which was somewhat common for families to do in some regions of Vietnam. Somehow, I did not take no for an answer. After looking for her for more than a year using embassies, correspondence, and finally traveling across the world again and trekking through rivers and jungles, I was not about to be deterred. I asked the woman for Leanne's address. I was going to talk to Leanne out of this marriage. 
The woman refused to give it to me. I didn't have Leanne's address, but now I knew the name of the city. So I strapped on my backpack and began a walk to the road and heading for Bamatui. The woman took pity on me. She said if I walked there, I would not make it alive. Enemy lines crossed Tuiwa and Bamatui on the road. She gave me the address when I promised to leave by bus the next morning. I got on a bus with a lot of Vietnamese and began the trip up to Bamatui. About halfway there, we were stopped by a squad of Viet Cong, whose job it was to collect tolls and fees from any vehicles past that point. That was one way the enemy worked. Being the only white person on the bus, I was quickly spotted. At first, they left the vehicle, and their vehicle moved a little only to be stopped again. Two men came back on the bus, pointing an AK-47 directly at my head, and pulled at my shirt to get me out of my seat and off the bus. I was forced to the ground with my hands clasped behind my head. One of the Viet Cong kept poking my face and cheek with the barrel of his gun, shouting at me in Vietnamese, of which I partially understood. Another Viet Cong soldier went to the top of the bus, looking through luggage, packages, and such, and my green backpack was just above the passenger door near the tail end of the bus. I could tell that they were convinced I was an American soldier or spy, and one of them kept kicking me in the back. I decided to answer them in French, since I had some practice of it in country before. Some Vietnamese could not speak English, but knew some French. I pretended to be French and stuck with that, not daring to speak or even understand English, since one of the Viet Cong attempted to speak English to me. I spoke in French, broken as it was, hoping the enemy did not know French as well. I tried to say that I was a French journalist from the Le Monde, and I was on assignment in Vietnam. Le Monde was sympathetic to the Vietnamese communist regime in Hanoi. My ruse apparently was working, and not a moment too soon. One of the Viet Cong soldiers had climbed atop the bus to examine the luggage. He was just about hovering over my backpack, which had my American passport and Leanne's address. The guy I believed to be the Viet Cong commander motioned for him to come down. He had his men release me and lifted their weapons away from my head. The commander then smiled and motioned for me to get back on the bus. I did. Looking back out the bus window, I watched as the men slipped out of view into the side bushes and trees at the side of the road. And turning my head to look back into the bus, I saw every Vietnamese man, woman and child silently staring directly at me with little expression in their faces. Then one by one, they all turned back around in their seats to tend to their own business. The bus then moved on and we finally arrived in Leanne's village. I looked up Leanne's address, but she wasn't there. An older woman, Leanne's mom, maybe, told me that Leanne married a Vietnamese policeman and that I should go back home. I left the house, more like an enlarged hut, and I went to the fields to go look for Leanne. After several hours, I found myself on the top of a hill looking down. And there she was, putting clothes in a basket. And then, as if she sensed me, she looked up. Steven? I hurried down the hill, almost losing my hat and backpack. She remained planted. As I reached her, I stopped. Knowing that she was not the only one working in this field, I resisted the urge to take her in my arms and lay a big, happy ending kiss on her. Follow me. Leanne took me into a hut. That's where she lived now. How? I promised you I'd come back, and I did. But how could you marry someone else? I'm not married. 
Oh, thank God. The wedding is in three weeks. Lien took a seat. I could see her mind was reeling. My parents told me that you would never come back and that I would never hear from you again. After you left, I heard nothing from you. Not one letter. I reached into my backpack and pulled out a bundle of letters. Three dozen of them. These are just the ones that got sent back. I wrote every week. Oh, my parents must have done this. Of course, because they hate me. They did not want us together. That is not the same thing. Well, it's the same with mine. But that'll change once they get to know you. They won't ever meet me. Stephen, the dream of your grandmother's farm is beautiful. But it is only a dream. Suddenly, her father showed up wielding a long bamboo stick. He began yelling at Leanne and then cried out to me, pointing at her married, Boku babies. I blurted right out at her father, You lie. I know she's not married yet. This enraged him, and he swung his bamboo stick at Leanne, hitting her on the head, hurting her. Suddenly, by reflex, my fist shot out, hitting her father in the jaw and sending him to the ground. But his hired hands were close by, about 11 of them, and they all jumped me and dragged me across the field, and together they threw me into some fenced barbed wire, scratching me up pretty badly. Blood was dripping from my shirt. Leanne was escorted away by her father and these men. During the next few days, I tried finding her to see if I could just talk to her and find out what had happened to our relationship. One night, I found out where they were keeping her and I approached the house. My right arm started to sting right around the biceps. It kind of made me twirl around before losing my balance and falling to the ground. I crawled up into a shadow and sure enough, my right arm was bleeding. The bullet had grazed it. I carried a first aid kit, so I wrapped it up with fresh bandages until it stopped bleeding. I looked up from the ground where I had fallen and saw men once again moving Leanne out of the house and down a back street. I had to crawl out using the shadows and stay low. More shots were fired in my direction but missed. A day later, some Vietnamese men that knew her father told me that he was with the Viet Cong, so I assumed he was either a sympathizer or Viet Cong himself. After all this, I suddenly realized that I had been dating the daughter of a Viet Cong regular, who was used primarily not as a soldier anymore, but one that gathered intelligence. I still wanted to find Leanne, and got word again where she was, and this time only one guard was posted at the house she was at. He was armed with a pistol, which I could not identify in the dark. Waiting until nightfall, and crawling softly toward the guard's back, I made the mistake of stepping on a twig, and the guard turned around pulling out his pistol, and obviously expecting me said something like, Thou hung mine, which meant surrender American or something like that. Out of the dark, I knocked the pistol from his right hand, grabbed the man's shirt, roughly and quickly turned him around to fully face me. It struck the guard hard as I could across the jaw. I didn't know how to respond to him in Vietnamese, so I just said, Shut up. The men went down, and his eyes rolled toward the back of his head. It looked like he might get up, so I kept hitting him until he lost consciousness. But I was also hoping he wasn't dead. Taking some rope and a red headband, I bound his arms and legs and muffled him with my headband. I pulled him into a nearby bush. Then I walked into the house unopposed. I startled the inn. She looked at me, frightened. God, that killed me. Hey, 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 I, I just want to talk. 
She calmed down. The other day, your father cut us off. I, I just want to understand what happened to us, Leanne. I risked everything to come back, just like I said I would. You owe me a better explanation. I did not think you were coming back. My parents want me to marry another man. Do you want to marry this guy? I should marry him. What does that mean? My family. I must do what is asked of me. Don't you still have feelings for me? Lien remained quiet. It was probably just a few seconds, but it felt like forever. I am to be married, and you must go home. You didn't answer my question, Stephen. It is not safe for you here. The longer you stay in Bang Mei Tuo, the more danger for you. Then she noticed a bandage on my right arm from the gunshot wound. Her lip quivered, and it looked like she was going to cry. At this point, I didn't care if I lived or died, but I cared about her life. It was too much for Leanne to handle. Too much. And being here, it was hurting her. That's the last thing I wanted to do. I am.、Uh, I guess. I guess I'll I'll just go now. She let me hug her for the last time. No kiss though. She was engaged. Those afternoons making out on the beach at Camram Bay—they seemed like a lifetime ago. About that time, I heard a Vietnamese man screaming outside. It was the guard I beat up. He did not stay unconscious and even managed to get himself loose from my restraints. A thought raced through my mind. That's funny. In the movies, when the good guys beat up the bad guys, they always stay unconscious. Then again, this was real life, and my knocking a guy out was not permanent. I took one last look at Leanne, and she at me. The first time, I had snuck in through the back door, but now I had no choice but to leave through the front. I slipped into some nearby jungle, away from the lights and night campfires. I slept on the ground. The next morning, I woke to the sound of motorized scooters. Zipping along a nearby road, the rays of the rising sun cut through the trees. Getting up, I noticed a bright green snake about a foot long slithering around my backpack. I knew it was venomous and waited for it to do its business snooping around. Then it slithered away. Quickly checking my belongings for snakes and other small animals, I found no more and walked out onto the busy street again. This time, heading across the street, past a number of huts, and into the fields again, where I would see and once again meet Leanne's father. Now being alone, he looked startled when he turned and saw me there. But I put up my hand in a gesture of peace and said, "Ngay mai toy di Saigon," which in English meant, "Tomorrow I will go to Saigon." I was giving him the indication now that I would leave the country. I was leaving Leanne. He spoke back in English, "You go home." I nodded my head yes and extended my hand. I knew I was shaking hands with the enemy and wondered if he truly had any role in killing Americans. My guess was that he was more of a Viet Cong sympathizer than an active participant. Yet just a few days earlier, he tried to have me killed. I couldn't believe I had tried to marry the daughter of the enemy, but it did answer a lot of questions. I headed out. This time, no one tried to shoot me, but a South Vietnamese soldier I met said that my trip back was now too dangerous and invited me to hitch a ride back to Nha Trang with their military convoy. After getting back to the train, I hitched a ride on another beer truck headed for Saigon, where I fixed my visa and passport. I headed out of country onto the United States.
After a brief stay in San Francisco, I took a plane back to Logan Airport in Boston. Dad and his wife, my new stepmother, picked me up at Logan Airport, 40 days after dropping me off. I was dirty, dehydrated, and most of all, despondent. Jesus, Mary and Joseph. Your clothes are practically hanging off you. How much weight did you lose? I don't know, 10, 15 pounds. It was more like 20. Steve, are you okay? Dad, she didn't want me. My father reached out for me. He pulled me in close and he hugged me. I could smell his cologne. It's okay, son. It's okay. We want you. He could have said I told you so, but he didn't. By early June 1974, 11 months before the fall of Saigon, I had already finished my commitment to the Army. I was a young Vietnam veteran starting the next phase of my life, but I could not put the war behind me. I had been accepted by a local college in Boston, but soon realized that I couldn't stay home. Home was a part of the memory I was trying to put behind me, so I went to college in the Midwest. From there, my life would be one of just remembering Vietnam nonstop, kind of paralyzed in time. My grades were not so good at first. I was attracted to cult movements, but worse than that, I tried applying for jobs using my military record and got no offers. Applying at the Columbus Post Office, I tried to leverage my experience at the Army Post Office. Delivering the mail in a war zone was a lot more challenging than in Columbus, Ohio, but my experience didn't matter. I wasn't even allowed to apply. After arriving on campus, I was at least three to four years older than the average freshman, but it seemed I'd lived a whole lifetime in the last year and a half. The campus environment was very negative about the war and not welcoming the veterans. The college co-eds, however, did show interest in me. I went out with some of them, but did not have the will to reciprocate their interest, and I'd always find a reason to bail. In April 1975, South Vietnam fell to the communists. Many Vietnamese refugees escaped the country to Guam and other designated areas. I contacted Guam and was able to get a hold of Vietnamese I knew that would make it there. I received bad news that Lian and her family never made it out and in fact, may have been killed as they attempted to escape the fighting around Bamatui. I could not know for sure if she lived or died. I hoped for the best, but I was devastated. I started seeing a shrink. Eventually, she got me to remember things about the war I tried to forget, especially one day in particular, April 9, 1972. I remembered that five ground troops were killed in Vietnam that day. I remembered being in the middle of this combat and wished now that I had died. Another Marine pilot that took off from Vietnam was shot down that same day and later would be declared KIA. That was six killed on that fateful day. I remembered wishing that I should have been the seventh soldier killed instead of surviving. My shrink believed that I projected myself into the KIA list, making me the seventh soldier. This was based on guilt that I survived and compounded by a wish that I really was killed before meeting Lien. She said to me, Stephen, you have to put the war behind you put Leanne behind you, and move on with your life. I knew she was right. I didn't know if I could. I had tried. Years before, after coming home from Vietnam, I took the ring Leanne gave me and threw it into the ocean, hoping that would provide some closure. But it didn't. For a while, I gave up, thought I'd never move past it. But on this day, the shrink's words sunk in. I had to try again. And pretty soon after that, I find myself sitting on a park bench in Ashland, Ohio. 
now a college professor, I was drawing up a lesson plan for my upcoming autumn classes before driving back home. It was then that I was struck looking at a woman sitting on a bench that I just couldn't resist. I doubt I had had that feeling in over 27 years. By now I was mid-40s and she was about 41. I struck up a conversation asking what she was reading and asked if I could share her bench. She gracefully said yes and we began to talk, introducing ourselves. We set up a date for that night and it took off from there. The moment I sat down in the park with my future wife, Debbie, was the moment I suddenly felt as if my dark thoughts of being the seventh killed in combat that day dissipated. That seventh soldier did not die but lived to love another day. All the memories of Vietnam, the men killed, Leanne and her family, suddenly became my past instead of my overbearing present. We went to see a movie that night, and later on we discussed our lives over coffee and me frankly telling her about my troubled past. Debbie asked, is it still hurting you? I reached for her hand and held it and replied, not anymore. I had avoided telling this story about Leanne because it made me relive the pain. I just wanted to get past it and move on with my life, but it wasn't that easy. It hung over Debbie and me like a dark cloud. Over the 22 years since we got married, Debbie would push me to find closure. That's why I'm telling this story now. Maybe now I'll finally be able to move past it, and perhaps, by some twist of fate, Leanne will have some closure too. True War Stories Mission Report is a production of Voyage Media. This series is produced by Nat Mundell, Robert Midas, Dan Benamore, and Adam Prince. This episode, The War Bride, was written and directed by Adam Prince based on the life of Stephen Spencer. Stephen is writing a book based on these experiences, and we will update the show notes with a link when it's available. Starring Lucas Till as Stephen. Additional cast credits in the show notes. Editing and sound design by Andres Coca. Original music by Durlis Gonzalez. If you're enjoying the show, Please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or anywhere you're listening, and subscribe now for future episodes.